0: This is David Bernstein, founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. The JILV supports liberalism and opposes the imposition of critical social justice ideology in the Jewish world. Check us out on JILV.org and subscribe to the SpeechCast wherever you listen to your podcasts. The SpeechCast is a joint venture of the JILV and the speech project of the Jewish Journal. I'm pleased to have with us today Robert Leighton. Robert is a non-resident senior fellow at uh, the Brookings Institute. He is an author, he is a lawyer. He started today with a new firm called uh, Berger Montag out of Philadelphia. Um, He is somebody that I've followed over the years in his writings and uh, speaking and so forth. And I was really intrigued when um, I saw a book called Resolved, how debate can revolutionize education and help save our democracy. And uh, welcome.
1: Thank you so nice much. Nice you. Thank you, thank you for having me on.
0: Sure. So you have this uh, whole idea about how debate can change the way we think about education. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, so um, I was a competitive debater in high school and college. Uh, and in 2018, uh, this is many years, of course, after I had been in high school and college, I'm gonna be 72 in May. Um, in 2018, I got a te- I got a notification on my Twitter about an article in the Christian science monitor of all places talking about how debate was a really big deal in Kansas. And, uh, I write books for a living and I'm always looking out for the next book. And I was very disturbed at that time about the tremendous polarization in the, in the country, uh, which of course is now worse than it was then. Uh, and I immediately had a thought bubble come to my head. First is I know a lot about debate. And second is I imagined if everyone had had in the country had had debate training, like I did, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in. Because one of the things you learn in competitive debate is how to talk to people in a civil manner. You make cogent arguments based on reason and evidence. Uh, You learn how to basically uh, take arguments that you don't like or whatever, but you, you focus on the argument, not on the person. And so you learn all these skills in competitive debate. And so you know, the immediate thought I had, well, maybe I should write a book about how everybody should become a competitive debater and quickly realized, of course, that's ridiculous. That's like asking everybody to be a basketball player and be on a, you know, on a college team, professional, uh, you know, professional teams. That's just totally unreal, uh, unrealistic. So I started making lots of calls to a lot of people who had been in a debate. They all agree with me, by the way, in the premise that if everybody had had debate training, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in. But then eventually I ran across two remarkable educators, one in Boston and one in Chicago, who were adapting competitive debate into the classroom, not just into a debate class, but into every class in middle and high school, even in science and math. And we can talk about how that can be done later. And basically it enables everyone to learn through debate. And the teacher, instead of becoming a sage on the stage, and lecturing and having stuff go through you know, kids' ears, uh, you know, one ear and out the other, the kids themselves teach each other by learning how to argue and, and learning how to do it in a civil way. And the, the, what, what, what I found when I went to Chicago and Boston and saw this in practice, and these were, by the way, mostly schools that were minority kids, typically a year or two behind grade level when they started, and debate had dramatically changed their lives in the same way that it had changed mine. And the kids retain more, they understand more. It's just common sense that when you have to articulate something and learn how to speak something, you're going to understand it better and you're going to remember it better. And you're just not going to just, you know, remember it for the test and then all of a sudden forget it. It sticks in your head. So it's a much better way to educate. And I wrote a book about it. And that's the title of the
0: book. Beautiful. So- we are living in this age of sort of information overload. And at the same time, our intermediating institutions have also sort of crumbled. In other words, we don't have a Walter Cronkite um, interpreting the world for us in a unified manner as we might've, you know, just a decade or two ago. Um, And I've had this, sense that we need, and I, I've called it this like a Marshall plan for critical thinking. In other words, we have to scale, scale up critical thinking um, so that people can interpret the world and be able to make sense of a bewildering information environment. Um, as a, a, your friend and mine, John Roush, would say, you know, a, sort of an epistemic chaos um, that we're, we're currently in. And, um, and I, I've raised this with a few people, and one person, very smart person, said, that's all fine and dandy, but I don't think the vast majority of people are capable of critical thinking skills. Um, and, and so I wanted to pose that to you. Do you, think, uh, do you think this can be scaled? Do you think that most people um, might be are capable or even even a, a majority of people are capable of critical thinking skills that would emerge from debate?
1: Absolutely. And so there is this notion, which is false, that debate is only for the smart kids you know, and uh, uh, that was radically disproved by the Boston Chicago experience. And by the way, I found out this kind of debate training is going on in other schools in America. And I'm very active in facilitating that and trying to promote that, but that's a separate issue. But when I went to these classrooms, these are kids, you know, eighth grade from eighth grade to, you know, all the way to seniors. As I said, many of them um, uh, were a year or two behind grade level before. Uh, most of them, uh, when they began, had uh, very little ability to speak uh, in a public way before their classrooms. They were intimidated uh, and uh, debate gradually. If it's done gradually, um, you just can't simply really take a kid and put him in front of the room and say, start debating. Uh, you know, you can start as simple as and this is literally and don't laugh. You can start a classroom at the beginning of the year by dividing the class into a bunch of uh, you know pods, four per you know uh, groups of four. They turn their desks around. You assign two kids on one side and two kids on the other. You have to have a proposition, and you have to tell the kids uh, that when you make an argument, it has to have a reason, and it has to have some evidence. You just can't say you know X is true because I read it on someplace. You have to be able to explain it. So you can start out simply at the beginning of the year by saying, which is better, a cat or a dog for, for a pet? And you can't just simply say it's because I like cats or I like dogs. There have to be reasons for things. Once you get kids accustomed to start con- you know, conversing on very simple things, you can do it, by the way, in sports, for example, what's better to watch, basketball or football or baseball, etc. cetera. Once you get kids accustomed to start talking first to each other, they're not talking to the teacher up front they're not embarrassing themselves in front of the teacher. They gradually, it's like learning how to ride a bike. You know, they, they learn how to talk in a civil way. The teacher walks around the room and basically when they start, if the kids start, you know, cursing or they start behaving, misbehaving, they say, no, you can't do that. That's not the way we talk. We talk in a civil way, et cetera. You can gradually build up critical thinking and persuasive argumentation skills in anyone. All right. And mm-hmm. you're talking this is the average kid, you know, and so so um, uh, the notion that debate is only for smart kids is, 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 is simply false.
0: Um, so I grew up um, arguing. Um, I don't know if you'd call it debate or not, but arguing with with friends about all kinds of issues. And and over time, I felt that that helped me develop. Critical thinking skills that I later brought with me into studying college philosophy, or, or um, you know, arguing about the issues of the day. It made me want to learn. Um, yet I also dabbled at one point in formal debate, which was really different than the kind of arguing I did, you know, around the living room with my friends. Um, how are they different? and How are they the same? And 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 are we, are we are you trying to actually teach kids? formal debate skills like you learn in a debate club or in debate competitions or more the informal style of argument that one can can learn and and still, I would think, develop some critical thinking skills?
1: Much more the latter than the former because formal competitive debate, I'm sad to say, and I talk about this extensively in the book, over the last 50 years has, in my opinion, moved in the wrong direction. Mm. Uh, It has emphasized rapid speaking, to the point of unintelligibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is based on kids preparing these very, very detailed uh, outlines in Word, and then basically read them as fast as they can without even thinking or listening to the other side. It is, it absolutely is horrifying. I mean, if people want to see what's happened to competitive debate, all they have to do is Google, Google Or go to YouTube and just punch in, for example, let's say the 2021 or 2020 National Debate High School Championship or the National College High School Championship. And what they see there will horrify them. All right. And that is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about exactly what you're talking about, which is normal conversation, being able to come up with persuasive arguments, uh, backed by reason, and learn how to talk to people in a civil way. Uh, And Uh, that's a skill, by the way, that's not just useful for citizenship, as I have a whole chapter in my book that talks about this. It's immensely valuable in the workplace, because one of the things that employers complain about most today, about kids either coming out of high school or college, is no matter how smart they are, whether they have a four-point average or whatever, they can't give a 60-second elevator speech about what they're working on. Or if they're in a collaborative work environment, they can't interact with other people or their boss and be able to say, they ought, it ought to be done this way rather than that way. They can't even articulate things, and so this is a sad state of affairs, by the way. Uh, and uh, the best way to prove, you know, to improve this and make sure that this kind of stuff, uh, you know, you know, passes from the scene is to inculcate debate uh, at, a, at an early age. And by the way, there are organizations that are that are uh, teaching debate skills as early as third grade.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I suspect that's probably when I was learning it on my own, just from being around a lot of other kids who probably had a similar Mm -hmm. disposition. Um, But I was lucky in that way. I I was lucky that I was brought up in an environment where where debate was encouraged and understood that way. And I'm sure if I had been brought up in a different environment, I would have never even gotten exposed to those skills. Um, You'd mentioned that one of the things that made you want to write this book was sort of our polarized political environment um, can you describe what your what your concerns are about the larger ideological environment we're in today?
1: Well, things obviously are much worse than what I wrote. And I, to be honest with you, I'm much more confident that debate centered education can revolutionize education than it can save our democracy. I mean, I'm, I'm you know, I'll be perfectly blunt. I'm very worried about our democracy. Uh, and mm-hmm. I mean, we may be we may be past the tipping point. And, Uh, We can't obviously teach adults who already dug into their information silos, you know, how to be able to objectively have an argument um, or even a rational discussion with people that, you know, have a different political jersey on the front of their um, shirts. So uh, I'm not going to make that that bold claim. I mean, I'm not going to claim it's going to save democracy. If we can somehow manage this transition and get over the hump over the next five or 10 years and hopefully preserve our democracy. If we can train enough kids who are future voters in the kinds of techniques I'm talking about, then yes, I am confident in the long run, you can have an electorate that will behave the way our founding fathers, you know, wanted us to behave. And ultimately, what is democracy other than um, reason, discourse and public discussion and debate? That's what democracy is. And, you know, by the way, there's a huge movement now today to try to get civics back into the schools. And because civics were cut out and, you know, look what the result is. But now people say, oh, we got to get civics back, civics. And, and, you know, the best way to teach civics is to do civics. And civics is not just teaching, well, here are people, here's the Constitution, here's what it says. Let's have discussions about what does actually Article One I mean or what does the First Amendment mean? And then have debate topics around those. And in the course of actually doing civics, you learn civics. So that's why I think debate and civics education there's like a hand and glove. They go in, you know, they're they're perfectly matched. And the best way to teach civics is through
0: debate. Right. So we we have this whole debate over one whether critical race theory is being taught in classrooms, and two whether that's a good thing or not. Even if you choose not to call it critical race theory, it seems to me that if you had a robust civics program, you could raise issues like, well, what do, do you believe that uh, of of this. Uh, what do you think about critical race theory? And have students debate it rather than being taught it or being taught certain things about how so- social dynamics work. What do you think of that? that? That's sort of one of the things I've been sort of toying in my mind. How, how can you, you know, I, I am personally, and I don't know how you feel about this, um, not opposed to state banning of anything, including critical race theory. But um, but I'm I'm also concerned that that it, that schools are indoctrinating kids in specific ideologies. It doesn't have to be just CRT, but in a whole host of things. And instead, if you had a debate-oriented education, you'd be debating these things, not telling kids, not imparting them to kids.
1: Okay. So the very first thing I say about CRT or about virtually any issue is let's get rid of labels. And by the way, this goes for political parties too. I don't want things identified as Republican or Democrat or whatever. Let's talk about fundamental Debatable propositions and then what and then action items, what to do. So instead of talking about critical race theory, here's two propositions which I think are uncontestable, but then we can debate about how to solve them. One is, is there currently racial discrimination going on in the United States? I think it's incontestable that it is. All right. Now, what should we do about it? Now that's a debatable subject. All right. People have different ideas. Should we actually have race conscious policies? Or should we have um, uh, uh, socioeconomic um, uh, policies that let's say, you know, uh, 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 give you an advantage if you come from a poor area regardless of your race, rather than as explicitly race conscious policy. That's an example of one thing. A second topic, which I think really goes to the heart of, of, of the debate about critical race theory is, do as a general proposition, do African-Americans suffer because, today because of past, past legal discrimination, which was not dismantled legally until the civil rights laws in the 1960s. Do they suffer from past discrimination? I would argue yes, all right? Now we can have a debate about that, but then, I mean, I think it's incontestable that, that on average, Blacks have suffered because of past legal discrimination, Jim Crow laws, et cetera. But then we come to the critical question, just as we talked about racial discrimination, what do we do about that, all right? Do we just ignore it? Um, do we have reparations? Do we have affirmative action? Do we have, uh, you know, as I said, maybe special benefits for socioeconomic status without regard to race, uh, because you can accomplish many of the same things through, through socioeconomic status as you could through explicitly race targeted um, uh, policies, which raise a whole set of complicated issues, constitutional issues, because race is a suspect classification under the 14th Amendment raises complicated questions. but in any event, I'd rather have very concrete debates about these issues and forget about the labels. Um, focus Agreed. on the problem and whether it could be climate change or you name any one of our other problems about inequality, you know, about economic growth, uh, you know just go down the list you know and yes. get people to focus on the problem. and then ideally, I would I think the most productive thing this goes for adults too is let's focus on how to use debate to advance solutions not so much argue about the problem what should we do about it and then we can have constructive conversations
0: sure. so the way that it's often framed now is the using the term systemic racism which is right. a little harder to get your head around and you the, the basic proposition is are there invisible s- systems of bias are there is there invisible bias that's embedded in the very institutions of society i mean that that's a question that I think is debatable and and, and perhaps not even falsifiable in some ways, Um, can, and, and is that something that um, students could debate or is that something that they should be taught? Um, And I guess then the question is, if you do believe that there are, uh, what what are the causes of disparity that exist among, among groups? Um, Is that something that we could even approach during debate? Is it too sensitive? How would you deal with some of those? I think David, you've got a really good point
1: which is exactly what are the causes of disparity? Um, And um, uh, those are are debatable issues. So I'm I'm gonna raise one very controversial issue, which happens to be true. I I recently wrote a document for Standard & Poor's um, and it's on their website um, with a number of other um, economists. And we cite a very well-known study uh, by Robert Putnam of Harvard, one of the leading political scientists in the country. It's in, in his latest book, Upswing. And he, mm-hmm. he uh, points the, the following fact: This is a fact, right? If you look at the relative disparities between blacks and whites on a number of dimensions income, wealth, uh, 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 longevity, health status, etc the relative disparities between blacks and whites narrowed um, over the 50 years before the civil rights laws. This is a true statement, all right? Mm -hmm. since the civil rights laws, there's been essentially no change. So we've had 50 years of legalized, no discrimination, and yet the disparities between blacks and whites on average have not narrowed. What in the hell is going on? Mm. All right. Now that, that is something that we ought to be able to have inquiries about, research about, civil discussion about. Uh, And I mean, I have a hypothesis. I believe that some part of that is due to the fact of lingering effects of past discrimination. They still have not washed out of the system, but there are other factors at play, all right? There is personal responsibility. That plays a role. We can argue what, is, what portion is personal responsibility, what portion is environment, what portion is law, what portion, et cetera, and then et cetera, what to do about it, but that's a very disturbing fact. You know, Mm -hmm. and I think even though people were not very aware of it, you know, after George Floyd got murdered and then we saw the Black Lives Matter protests or whatever, underneath I think a lot of that was were people subconsciously aware that that nothing has happened in 50 years on average. Now, by the way, there have been improvements. Clearly, we've had changes in racial attitudes. There's a lot more marriage, intermarriage between whites and blacks, Mm -hmm. which is acceptable today and was against the law. Until Loving versus the United States in in uh, 1967 Supreme Court decision, so the point is that um, there has been progress, but there it's really really been slow. And right. uh, and and then then we and we can debate about what what should we do about that.
0: Hmm. You, uh, you know, one one of the fact that I've heard recently is that today two thirds of the of Black Americans now are in the middle class or above. In other words, actually a very high percentage of of black Americans have sort of left the inner city and have joined the ranks of the middle class. And some even, you know, you have even some black billionaires. Um, I think the poverty rate among Black Americans is around 18% today, which is much lower as a percentage of, of Blacks than it was in, I can't tell you what it is off the top of my head, but in 1964. And um, I think the poverty rate among whites um, or non-Black Americans might be around 12, 12%, so there's still a disparity there. Maybe the disparity itself has not narrowed, but the number of Blacks who have at, at, um, at, that have left poverty is actually gone way up over time. And I'm wondering, you know, I guess it's a matter of, I'm wondering what's the right narrative on that? Is the narrative to look at that and say, well, the disparities have remained wide? Um, or is the narrative to say, well, Blacks have made tremendous progress in this country, there's more to go. Um, and why is there more to go? Okay,
1: so um, think about everyone, all of us are on escalators. All right. And over time, all of us have moved up uh, uh, over time because economic growth has made us wealthier. And some of us have gone up faster than others. All right. Mm-hmm. And just putting aside race for a minute, um, it is a fact that there has been, you know, tremendous increase in, in income and wealth. Uh, uh, yes. Income That's since awesome. 1980, roughly speaking, and people mm-hmm. at the top 20 percent, top five or 10 percent, or top one percent, they their escalators moved up, you know, much much more rapidly than the people who were in the bottom 50 percent or whatever. Now they people in the bottom 50 percent have still moved up; they just haven't moved up at the same rate as the people at the top. Now, right. if you superimpose race on that, on average, blacks have moved up. Yes, and so a lot more are quote, in the middle class, but unfortunately the middle class is, depending on how you define it, itself has shrunk. That, that, that's a problem and it's shrunk and it's hurt whites and blacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would argue that the inequality, the increased inequality, and also the declining share of populations in the middle class. And then I'll add one more fact. And this is, this is a very important fact. There's a famous economist at Harvard named Raj Chetty and Raj, Raj will, I'm sure, he will win the Nobel Prize. Um, he has, he and his team have documented a tremendous decline in upward mobility among Americans in the last 40, 50 years. So, as an example, for people that were born in 1940, um, by the age of 30, um, 90% of them had done better than their parents. That that was basically my my parent generation. Okay. Today, if you were born in 1980 or later the chances that you were doing better than your parents are less than 50%. So there's been a dramatic decline in upper mobility. And I would argue you, 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 you marry the decline, of upper mobility, the shrinking middle-class rising inequality has given, has given rise to enormous amount of rage in the country. Rage mm-hmm. on the right, rage on the left, but rage. And so mm-hmm. I I think, and then some people say, well, you know, America, uh, all of its race. And I, I come back and I say, no, I see, I'm, I'm an economist and I see these underlying trends. And unfortunately, we see, of course, what happened in Europe in the 1930s. I see that when, when you have economic circumstances that hurt lots of people, unfortunately, we see our worst instincts come out and people, mm-hmm. the people that are essentially screwed tend to find scapegoats. You know, and we as Jews, of course, we're familiar with that. (laughs) You know, we've been blamed for things that were not our fault. And today, the temptation, unfortunately, on both the right and the left is to blame individuals, whether it's the rich, whether it's minorities or whatever, the temptation when when in fact, the underlying elements of our economy have have developed in a way to uh, drive tremendous divergence. And I think the underlying reason for that is we've had a change in technology. And technology essentially means that people who are very facile with I.T., they've done far better than people who are not facile with I.T. And that has opened up tremendous divergence. And that's where we are today.
0: Yeah, I want to come back to that in a minute. But first, I want to ask you about um, about what we're seeing on both the right and the left. Uh, it seems to me on the right, we're seeing kind of uh, this amorphous populism, um, you know, take the imagination of certain segments of the right that might not have had any real form to it in in years past, but maybe under Trump started to to gain some form. And on the left, I don't know what you want to call it, whether it's woke ideology, it's sort of a term that's fallen out of favor among yeah. some, or if you, uh, critical race ideology or critical social justice ideology. Uh, it seems to me that that's been given a form and even a much more explicit form than this sort of amorphous populism on the right, w- which might be much more dangerous. I don't know. It's sometimes hard, you know, I've had, I've, been in debates about that as well, about whether one is more dangerous than the other, or one is maybe immediately more dangerous, one is in the long term more dangerous. How would you describe this sort of polarization and how it gives expression on each side of the political spectrum?
1: So uh, the best person who's written about this is our mutual friend Jonathan Roush, who talks about this divide. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, And um, I think right now the much more dangerous form of this reaction this let's call it populism is right populism and the left populism by the way i'm not a fan of either one of them but the problem with the right populism is they have ar-15s right, right? and the people on the left generally do not all right um, now there is on the left obviously a movement toward cancel culture cancel this and so forth and a rigidity of thinking that has manifested itself on university campuses and elsewhere That is the antithesis of what America is supposed to be about. It's the antithesis of the First Amendment, et cetera. I don't like that at all either. Um, But on the right, we have uncomfortably number of people who are either advocating or welcoming or sympathetic to the idea of having a civil war. This is frightening. All right. Right. So we live in, I think we live currently in beyond dangerous times. Um, I wish I was clairvoyant enough to know how this is going to play out. I don't know. All I know is we are where we are, and it's a very dangerous place to be in.
0: Yeah. So I'm someone who's been on this, let's say, center left my entire adult life, and um, and yet I'm spending more time fighting the ideology on the left because it's in my own backyard, and I want to be right. comfortable on on the left or center left. I want to know that it's ultimately liberal in the classical sense um, over time. And I feel like I have less impact on what happens on the right, the people maybe in the Lincoln Project or others that have to fight that fight on the right. What is your, you, you're, you are a scholar at Brookings. Brookings is a traditional liberal institution. How, how do you feel about that? Like what is your role as a thinker, as a scholar in, on your, in your own ideal, I assume your own ideological yeah. backyard?
1: So, um, you know, if I had to characterize myself, i you know, I, I had a mentor at Brookings, the late Alice Rivlin, who was a remarkable woman. Yeah. Um, she did wonderful things for me personally. Um, and she was sort of my, my North star. She had a phrase to describe herself. Um, and I think this is of uh, most people at Brookings, I would describe myself as a radical moderate. All right. Mm. And that's yeah. how she described herself. And I think you probably fall in that camp. And I think there are a lot of people in my generation who are in the middle, who see, who want a a reasoned discourse of both sides. I see them, by the way, I see a lot of merit in, 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 in libertarian arguments. I do. All right. I also see a lot of merit in some, in, in, in many social justice arguments. You know, I mean, we all recognize that the constitution has, you know, the preamble toward a more perfect union. We've never had a more perfect union. We've never had a perfect union and we're sort of. Supposedly trying to work toward perfecting things and getting better. Um, so I, I come from a tradition of, you know, uh, uh, generally speaking, I am for moderate incremental progress because revolutionary change is really hard to achieve. And our system of government really wasn't conducive to revolutionary change. Um, but we live in a time now where people on both the right and left, it's all or nothing, it's a zero sum game. Uh, and, um, and I find it hard to break through with what I would call traditional debate arguments to people who are literally locked in on both sides. And that's why I focus my book and the kind of work that I'm doing right now, which is helping organizations train high school teachers and so forth to try to change the next generation of kids so that they will not grow up the way too many of people in this generation are already stuck. I don't know how to get them unstuck. To be honest with you, I I I, I wish I did. I don't. I, there are organizations out there that are trying to do that. For example, uh, Jonathan and other people are affiliated with this organization called Braver Angels, which tries to get people both on the right and the left to talk to each other in a civil way and have discussions, you know, by Zoom or, um, you know, the um, you, you know the equivalent. Um, but the kind of people that are involved in those discussions is still a drop in the bucket, uh, and. Um, uh you know all i can hope for is uh there'll be enough rational moderate people left who will be able to guide us somehow through this transition but as i said i wish i wish i had the magic formula right now i don't all i can do right now is i know i can affect kids um and 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 by the way i have much more confidence in teachers than a lot of other people do because the teachers that i've been working with and throughout the country there are a lot of teachers out there who really want to do right by kids. They really want to help their kids. It's true they're stifled by bureaucracy, and I grant that, you know? And I know that there are problems with teachers' unions, et cetera, and so forth. But by and large, most teachers want to help their kids, and they want to do the right thing. And I'm finding a receptive audience among teachers to use these kind of debate techniques because they'll have more fun teaching, and the kids will have more fun, and they're more likely to do better in school. So that's the best I can do right now is try to work on the next generation and hope somehow we we make our way through the next 10 years. Um, it's sort of like we're going through class five rapids, right? You know, we got we to get to the other side. And if we do intact, then, um, you know, the kind of thing I'm talking about is we'll help build a society that'll be uh, more impervious to kind of things that we're, you know, that are troubling our country today.
0: Right. So I've heard two ways that we might be able to sort of navigate those class five rapids. Um, One is that, as you said, technology is probably playing a very large role in in driving this and that that ultimately we're gonna need some kind of stabilizing force um, to make sure that people who are unemployable in many ways uh, um, have enough resources to live and we're gonna need we're going to need universal basic income or something like that to um, to to sort of stabilize this uh, this very volatile environment. Um, because we're not going to be able to change that fundamental economic force of certain people having the skills that the economy wants and needs and other people n- no longer having them at the same the, the good part of that is of course if machines can start to produce food and houses and other <laughs> things it'll be a lot cheaper for people to actually obtain those things but they still might not be able to work in a ver- uh, to, to get them and that and so that that's one and the other one is by again John Rauch, um, who should be here I think because he's yeah. uh, everybody's speaking for him um, is um, is this idea that, that sort of a, on an organic level, some of the uh, media in- institutions like Facebook and Twitter are starting to self-police and are starting to do what, what eventually the mainstream media did maybe 50 years later after it sort of established itself, it, it became more responsible and started to play that role. And we may be seeing that happen and that may actually turn down the, the temperature of the public debate. Um, what, what are your thoughts on those two possibilities?
1: On social media governing itself, um, they're moving in the right direction. Although um, even with the 20,000 contractors that Facebook says it has, um, there's no way it can keep up with, um, <laughs> with all the hate and so forth that's on the, on the, uh, on the platform. And um, uh, the one thing that Facebook is doing that I think now there's consensus on both the right and the left, and by the way, there's almost consensus on nothing, but the right and the left do agree, I think, on the algorithms. That, a, that Facebook is using, especially once it was revealed recently that, you know, something is five times more likely to be shared, um, if you have an angry button, and if it does, you know, a, uh, you know, just a like button. And so there's an algorithm into your newsfeed that basically is feeding you stuff that is being driven by very, very angry reactions. Um, that's not good. Um, and so um, I actually wrote a I have, a, I have a column regularly, and people want to read it. I have something called uh, it's just robertlighten.substack.com. Uh, and I wrote a recent Substack column on what to do about Facebook. And I go through all the options, and I find that basically almost every single idea that you come up with has a problem, either a legal problem or a constitutional problem or a practical problem. But the only one that I thought that had a glimmer of hope was perhaps, I underscore the word perhaps, some kind of regulation. Um, uh, of the algorithms because the algorithms themselves are not speech you can't control speech on the first amendment so you can't do that but if you've got algorithms that intensify hatred and they drive the country apart you can argue that that's no different than let's say a cigarette or something else is trying to kill you because this is killing our body politic so i can i'm open to the idea of having regulation over harmful algorithms that's on that's on social media mm. and then um and then your first point. Um, I've already forgotten there were,
0: there It's there were two- about, yeah, it was about sort of universal basic income. I don't oh, want yeah. to focus on that so much, but about the sort of the need to stabilize people who are yes. unemployable in a, in a current and future economy.
1: Yeah. So, um, in a way the, uh, child care, child care tax credit, which everyone's been talking about is going to expire in a couple of days. That is sort of like a universal income for people that have kids, you know, mm. and, um, I think in an ideal world um, we ought to have a an extension of that. But here, I know I'm going to offend the you know my progressive friends. I think the child I think the child care, care tax credit ought to be targeted. I do not think that it ought to go to upper middle class people. I think that's ridiculous. We have limited resources, and it ought to be targeted. You know, pick your income level. You know, 80,000 or whatever, and have it phase out. You know, um, you want to avoid cliffs. By the way. You want to avoid where you go from, you know, uh, you know at $80,000, you know, you automatically lose the credit. You have to have it phased out so you don't have a marginal tax rate, essentially, of over 100%. So, um, but I am for favoring, you know, a, a targeted a, a child a, a care tax credit. But on the idea that everyone's going to be unemployed, I just want to remind people, and again, this is the economist of me speaking. We've had these fears about technological unemployment for as long as I've been an economist, and I'm now 71 years old. We had this massive wave of fear in the 1960s. President Johnson appointed a commission on this, etc. And even in the 60s, they thought nobody's going to be able to work, all right? The history of economics, trust me, all right, is that what happens is technological change increases productivity, it leads to higher worker wages, it reduces prices, people are able to afford things, and we gradually, we shift to other things. So what is happening over the long run in our economy is we are shifting away from goods into services. And people are spending more and more time, let's say streaming, than they would have been. And they're spending a lot more time on video. And if you look at, by the way, content on, on, on entertainment, entertainment has gone through the roof. Entertainment is a huge industry, all right? Uh, precisely for the reasons we talked about. You got a gazillion channels. You have all these streaming things. There are lots of jobs in the content creation industry that people without a lot of skills can, can, can work on they build sets, they do a lot of skill, they have a lot of work for unskilled labor. And that's just one example. Another example is in the midst of the pandemic, Work wages at the lower end of the skill level have gone up tremendously, because people can't find workers in McDonald's or pick your name of your favorite restaurant. Low wage workers have seen their wages increase tremendously. Because uh, We've had we've had a, a tremendous demand for delivery services and all other kinds of things in the wake of the pandemic that have benefited low income workers who are willing to work. All right. And that's an important point. And uh, I think so. Make a long story short. I've written about this. I think the concern about technological unemployment is way well overdone. I, yeah. I, I do not think the history supports that argument. We've always found jobs for people, but we found them in different sectors, and the problem is moving from one sector to the other, and we have huge transition. And so over the course of my career, I've advocated policies that would facilitate and support people who are temporarily unemployed. And one example I've supported is an idea called wage insurance, where if you're thrown out of your job, and you take a new job, and you take a pay cut, the government would support some portion of the difference in your pay cut for a couple of years. It would basically ensure your downward mobility for a couple of years to give you time to be able to get trained and to do something else and trust me there are always new jobs if people are willing to do them uh, but i do see a role for government in easing that transition but i do not think we're going to end up in this dystopia where basically nobody's working except for the people in silicon valley and they're the only people that have jobs that is not the world we're headed in we're headed into a world in which there'll be different kinds of things that are demanded healthcare, entertainment other kinds of services and there are plenty of jobs there for people with only a high school
0: education. Hmm. Do you buy this idea that we should start moving people away from college education into trades and the like?
1: Well, I think we ought to not overemphasize college for a lot of people and that we ought to have, you know, I've come around to the idea of having free community college uh, where community college trains people in real skills like how to repair air conditioners or be plumbers or whatever, you know, you can earn a good, decent income being a repair person uh, that makes 60 to 80 bucks an hour uh, that comes to your house. Those are the skills that have disappeared in our society. you try to find some of these people.
0: Yeah, it's very hard.
1: And it's really hard. And the fact is a lot of people who do not feel like they're comfortable going to college or want to waste four years having stuff go through there and all the other they can, they can do these trades and still have a decent middle-class life. So I am for supporting that. So I'm not saying no college. I'm saying we ought to do more to help people who don't feel like they want to go to college. People have to keep in mind that although two-thirds of high school graduates go on to college, um, less than half of them finish, you know, and only 30% of the country has a four-year college degree. So most of the people in America have not finished college. But if they've in the future, if we have, let's say, people with two year degrees who have some very specialized skill, they'll be able to have a decent income. And we ought, to, we ought to not look down on that. And by the way, we should not look down on those people who do that. All right. Mm-hmm. Because people like us who have educations are dependent on these people, and we should appreciate these people. And one of the reasons why a lot of these people have moved to Trump is because they feel that no one respects them. And so they hate elites. And I don't, under, I do not blame them for being angry. Because right. a lot of, quote, liberals have, have forgotten about them. I mean, the best example I'll give you is when Robert Kennedy was assassinated. Um, you may be too young to remember this, but I remember watching it on TV. Yeah. There was a train that took him to Washington, D.C., and it was lined just like it was for JFK. Mm. It was lined with people. And the people that were watching and were crying at Robert Kennedy's assassination were people today who would be voting for Trump. And mm. how do you explain that? It's because I think the Democratic Party forgot about these people.
0: Mm. Yeah, I agree. It seems to me also some of these ideological trends that we've spoken. About are profoundly alienating as well. That when you start to speak of privilege, for example, whether there—I don't doubt that there's a such a thing as white privilege, but when you when you speak about it in, in such a broad way that implicates people who might be living in a opioid-infested yes. former manufacturing town, I don't care whether you make some kind of well, you say, well, if they were black, it would even be worse. I, I don't—I don't think that that's going to play very well. Th- those are people who have who have really suffered from the in the current environment and and I think that that's just a very it strikes me as a very alienating discourse for them.
1: I agree with that and I think I think it will be healthy in the long run as I said if we move away from race conscious kinds of attitudes towards socioeconomic status and forget about race because the fact of the matter is when you move to socioeconomic status. socioeconomic you indirectly, you help a lot of black people who've been screwed, Absolutely right? But you don't do it in a way that basically offends whites because whites have been screwed too, as we said. If you've grown up, and this is something else that Raj Chetty's research has shown, your fate is heavily determined by what zip code you grow up in. If you grow up in a poor zip code, I don't care what color you are, you have greatly long odds of making it into the middle class or better you're in a much more disadvantaged situation than you are if, you know, for somebody who's growing up in a white suburban, you know, upper middle class zip code. So zip codes matter a lot more than race, I would argue.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I read a little bit about redlining recently, which was the practices that of denying people access to housing and and so forth. It turns out that while 97% of black people were, were redlined about, um, about 87% of the people who were living in red line districts were not black. In other words, there were a lot of white people and it might not have been the, mm-hmm. the entire range of districts that were, that were in this study. might've been in New York or so forth, but it's, um, I thought that was, that was very interesting. A lot of the, the issues, even education issues that you're talking about might, might actually lift everybody up and, and aren't specific to anybody's um, racial identity. You you had mentioned um, anti-Semitism and how it can be exacerbated in the current ideological environment. Um, Right-wing anti-Semitism is a very is very familiar to us. You know, it it tends to follow a very familiar pattern. Left-wing anti-Semitism, however, can be sort of expressed in novel ways. What what is your take on what might be happening um, on the left?
1: Well, you're right. There's a different form of anti-Semitism on the left. Um uh it's highly correlated with uh with uh objections to Israel, an equation of Israel as an apart as an old quote, allegedly apartheid country, oppressive country, and um you know uh uh that has driven, I think, a lot of the um of the left-wing anti-Semitism. And you know, for Americans, you know, we're no position to judge. I mean, in my view, I mean you have to live in Israel to be able to really know what's going on. But I think that, um, that, that, uh, well, I was just going to say that I, I think a lot of the, of, of the anti-semitism on the left is, is related to Israel. It's not so much, it's not so much anger about what, you know, what Jews are allegedly doing or not doing in the United States. It's, it's very, very much focused on Israel. And, um, uh, you know, in an ideal world, there would be there would be peace in Israel, and a lot of this would melt away. But, but um, Israel, I don't have to tell you, is almost as polarized as the United States over over what to do about uh, going forward. Uh, and um, uh, so, all I can say is, I don't like anti-Semitism, whatever whatever color it's in, whether it's on the right or the left, whatever the jersey is, um, it's it's equally despicable.
0: There, there's a there's a line of reasoning out now that there's sort of been a um a new variant if you will of, of anti-semitism on the left that still implicates Israel but is not driven in the same way by it and it it's based on sort of this oppressor versus oppressed binary that is that is starting to dominate the way we think about all kinds of social issues. And once yeah. you take that binary and you apply it to Israel, but also to American Jews, if you believe in that it, that that there's a hierarchy of privilege that governs what resources we have access to and how we're treated in society, it's easy to make that sort of conceptual leap to there's to Jewish privilege. Um, the, the I've seen the same the same logic is sometimes applied to this concept of equity. If you believe that the only reason why there's disparity in the world is because of discrimination or oppression, then it's easy to imagine why Jews and Asians and other groups that on average have have succeeded economically and educationally might also be viewed as the oppressor. If someone has been oppressed by by someone else's success, then that's likely to lead to anti-Semitism as well. Well, What is your take on on that new variant idea and its relationship to this ideology?
1: Well, I think the environment in which the kind of thinking you're describing has grown up um, is very much a, um, you know, a uh, zero-sum notion that um, if others succeed um, and I don't belong to that group, that must be because, you know, they're suppressing me and they must be oppressing me. And why, why do people think zero-sum? Well, they think zero-sum in a world in which you have very slow economic growth. All right. Mm. I was raised in an environment, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, where the economy was growing at 4% a year on average, you know, smooth out the economic cycles. In the last, you know, 20, 30 years, we've grown at about 2%. And for a good portion of the population, they haven't experienced any income gains at all. So in a world in which that is not where economic advance is growing very slowly, that facilitates the kind of oppressor, oppressed, zero-sum kind of mentality that is gripping this country and i'm not saying i have the magic solution for getting economic growth up but I, I want people to recognize that's why that's why we have this it's like we're scorpions in a bottle and the bottle is is just we're all stuck in the bottle no wonder we're going to fight about it but if the bottle itself were expanding we wouldn't be doing this and mm. uh and i i don't think we'd have these kind of conversations back in the 1950s or 60s because generally speaking Most people were doing better, you know, we're doing better over time and uh, and and the change in economic circumstances, I think, has driven the kind of conversation we're talking about.
0: Hmm. So. um, You you're somebody who believes in debate centered education. We've talked about that. To what degree has your Jewish upbringing Hmm. um, affected your sort of mentality in that way? Is it is this something that has anything to do with uh, with being Jewish?
1: Okay. So a couple of things. I'm no Talmud scholar. If I were, I would say, you know, all Talmudic discussions are debates. And so clearly people who are great in Talmud should be great in debate and they should just naturally take to debate center education like a fish to water. All right. I can't claim that. All right. Even though I grew up in a conservative synagogue, um, I'm not, I'm not a Talmud scholar. All right. Now, does my Jewishness affect my Philosophy, answer, yes. I mean, I, I grew up in the shadow of the Holocaust. Uh, my mother's side of the family who I never met um, was, um, was wiped out. Um, and, you know, I was born in 1950. And, you know, uh, I grew up with people who had survived the Holocaust. and um, And so I identified at a very early age with the underdog because we were the underdog, right? right? And so when the civil rights movement started, uh, there were a lot of Jews who supported civil rights movement because blacks are the underdog in America. And um, I don't have to tell you the, the three Jews who got killed in 1964, helping the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I historically have been very sympathetic to people who've been screwed. That's just, mm-hmm. th- so in that sense, my Jewishness has made me a, you know, a person who is sympathetic with social justice, right? Now I overlay that though, my formal training is in economics. And one of the things you learn in economics is we have, we do not have unlimited resources, need to make choices. And so the rational part, the overlay of that social justice impulse, caught my heart, my head is as an economist. And I says, look, we got to make choices. And we just, not everything's a free lunch. We got to pay for things. And that's what economists learn is, is basically it's about choices. That's what economics is. All right. And uh, so uh, one of my favorite economists wrote a great book that summarizes all this. His name is Alan Blinder at Princeton. And Alan's a good friend of mine. And he wrote a, a book, great book called um, Hard Heads, Soft Hearts. Mm. That's what I am. And by the way, uh, I, Alan's Jewish, and I think, I think most Jewish economists share that view. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, exactly what I talk about. Now, it's an accident how I got into economics. That's a different matter. I was, I was swept away by a college professor who changed my life. You know, I mean, it just, you know, it was, he was incredible. His name was John Shere Gandhi. He was an Indian economist at University of Pennsylvania and changed my life. Um, but um, that that notion of hard heads, soft hearts is, is, I think, I think is a good way to summarize the way we ought, to, we ought to behave as a society. We ought to have sympathy with the underdog, allow for equal opportunity, not necessarily for equal results, equal opportunity. And we ought to, we ought to make that happen. And right now we don't because of the zip code problem we talked about before. There's tons of people in this country who do, well, day one, when they're born, are behind the eight ball. And when they run the race of life, they're 30, years, they're 30 yards behind everybody else on the, the starting line. And I would like us as a society to get to the point where at least most of us are at the starting line, you know, and not people that are disadvantaged from day one.
0: Hmm. I think I'm going to call this podcast um, soft hearts, hard Head" or hard, hard heads, soft hearts. Yeah. I think that's a that's a great metaphor, and it's something I think a lot about, you know, in social justice and certainly Jewish social justice, which has a soft heart, but often misses that hard head, and I and I uh, and 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 increasingly wants to sort of stifle it. I'm, that that's what concerns yeah. me. I mean, we we need the hard head, soft heart combo, and I feel like we've veered so much in the soft heart that we're not even going to be very effective in pursuing some of what we what we want in, in the world. So um, I really appreciate this. And um, I, I this is a longer podcast than I usually do because you have such depth of knowledge that I couldn't resist, uh, you know, asking you more questions than I might have otherwise. So really, um, really appreciate getting to know you. And thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.